Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. You know, when we first started this show, one of the organizations that really helped out in various ways was MUFON because some of their state representatives came on our show mm-hmm. and kind of helped us get things launched. Well, today we have James Carrion, who is the current head of the organization, and we're going to discuss MUFON, the cases about all the things that afflict or affect the UFO field, such as the status of investigations, of calls for disclosure, what he thinks about exopolitics, about a few of the cases he's gotten involved in, etc., etc. James, welcome to the Powercast. Thank you. Now, one of the things I was thinking to ask you here is, way back when we had several major UFO organizations. We had NICAP, National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. That was the organization of which Major Donald Kehoe had become director. Then, of course, we have the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization with the Lorenzans, and we had MUFON. Today, we just have MUFON. Do you kind of feel that you're the last one standing? Well, we, we sort of feel like that, but, you know, we're, we're also a much-needed resource uh, the reason MUFON exists uh, as a nonprofit organization is because we serve the public. And I believe NICAP and APRO filled uh, those same roles in their time. Uh, so if MUFON's not around, somebody has to be around to do what we do. And that's to, uh, to listen to people and to understand what they're, or try to understand what they're seeing in the skies. One of the things that we see with UFO organizations is that sometimes they reach the conclusions before the investigation. So does MUFON have a specific position as an organization as to what UFOs are? You know, we don't. And that's actually one of the things we're heavily criticized for. Um, We've been around for 40 years, uh, yet we are no closer today to understanding what this mystery is about than we were 40 years ago. it's, It's one of those enduring mysteries that... Uh, we have lots of data on, but we, we don't understand uh, who these occupants are, why they're here, whose craft they are, and essentially uh, why we're still subject to this mystery. It, it's, it's funny because it, it, they do persist. UFOs are an active phenomena. We don't have uh, symposiums on leprechauns anymore. Uh, you know, it's not, a, it's not a mystery that's out there. Everybody knows that it's fiction. But as far as this phenomena, it's still going on, and uh, MUFON actually prides itself on, on not drawing any conclusions because we are pretty much in the middle when it comes to the spectrum of belief. We consider ourselves skeptics and um, we rely on the data. The data hasn't exactly told us what's going on. So you're but, not locked into saying, well, if UFOs are real, they have to be spaceships. They can't be interdimensional. They can't be of the earth, crypto terrestrial, or something else. There's no specific point of view that you might be putting a hat on. As an organization, we don't endorse any specific hypotheses. Uh, there's a number of hypotheses that have been proposed throughout the years. Uh, you mentioned a couple of them. Uh, the ET hypothesis, uh, interdimensionality as a possibility, uh, human manufacture. It could be a mixture of all of the above. So we, we really don't have to hang our hat on any specific one because, uh, from my, in my opinion, there are multiple explanations. Now, individual MUFON chapters around the country, James, and there are a number of them, obviously, they're not bound to those same set, that same set of charter points, right? I mean, I've attended MUFON meetings in different states where there are agendas of the people hosting the meetings locally. So that's something that uh, you have as an organization. You establish 
sort of a national standard, but is it true that the individual MUFON chapters around the country, the state chapters, are sort of free to, like during their meetings, they're free to set whatever agendas they want, right? They are. We, we are a grassroots organization. Uh, each state chapter has its own leadership. Mm -hmm. We do give them some suggested guidelines, but we have to keep in mind that people are people and they bring in their own biases and their own beliefs. So if you have a state leader who is leaning more towards the uh, ET hypothesis, uh, then they're, they're going to push and promote that in their meetings. Right. So it's just, it's just part of, of human nature. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, one of the reasons that we wanted you to come on the show was because of your latest visibility with regards to the organization and the fact that uh, you're, you're someone who we feel, I think, a sense of kinship with in that we consider a lot of the statements you've made publicly to be very, very reasonable and rational. And you're one of those people who is a thoughtful skeptic. At least that's what I think we'd like to call you because of the fact that you have taken a rational position with a number of the claims that are made out in the field. And this has actually brought you some controversy and some difficulty. So I was wondering if you could expound upon that a little bit specifically. Uh, on Frank Warren's website, there's um, recently he published an, inter an exchange between you and this uh, this fellow uh, Rick Nelson. Could you could you expand upon that? Uh, tell our listeners what that's about. Well, the exchange between myself and Rick has to mm -hmm. is over the uh, Stan Romanek case, and I I hope your listeners uh, know who Stan Romanek is. He's been in the uh, the news quite a bit. He's the right. alien in the window. Uh, guy who came out with that video. He also wrote this book called Messages, where he claims he has the most documented uh, uh, extraterrestrial contact case on the planet. The problem that I've had with Romanek is that uh, he's made a lot of claims, but he has not released any of his good evidence for impartial analysis. And so I, I've been critical of him mm -hmm. for that. And, and the other thing that I find interesting about this gentleman is that he uh, tends to become very buddy with his investigators. So he, he basically, they become his friends, and they feel as though they need to defend him uh, rather than the data he's presenting. So Rick Nelson came out with some personal attacks against me uh, about some of the, the comments I made on the, uh, the Romanek case. And I'm basically saying, hey, Rick, uh, why are you attacking me? Try to attack the data I'm presenting. Uh, let's stick to the data. But as Stanton Freeman is fond of saying, if you can't attack the data and then attack, then you'll, you'll be personally attacked. And right. that's, uh, that's the tactic Rick took. And, and, um, but, you know, basically the Romanek case is still up in the air. I have a lot of questions. I haven't seen any good answers for it. Uh, that whole issue about the analysis of video and or imagery, um, the way that things were handled around the Romanek case with regards to that quote-unquote alien in the window uh, where you had a Jeff Peckman a local Colorado activist sort of glom onto that video and essentially use it to get himself public exposure. You know, he shows up on the David Letterman show and, uh, the sort of exopolitical side of the, of, of this realm dubbed that some huge triumph where, you know, he goes on David Letterman shows that clip of video that, um, I mean, we think is quite frankly sort of silly. Um, and, and, and that video has never been released for any kind of independent analysis. You bring up an incredibly valid point in that. To my knowledge, that video has still never been released. At least the, that's, that's the word that we have. I had actually spoken to the one person 
and I don't have his name in front of me at the moment. I could, I could certainly find it. But they had this one college professor who claimed to be a visual effects expert, really actually turns out is a final cut teacher at a, at a college somewhere, who said that he had looked at the footage and thought it was interesting. And I had actually got this guy on the phone, spoken with him, and he basically admitted that he had no analysis skills. He had never done any video analysis of any kind of anomalous information. Um, and he wasn't even really comfortable being quoted directly. So this is something we run into time and time again in uh, these cases where there are these people who claim to have mountains of compelling evidence, but ultimately there is no third-party analysis. So here's a direct question, James. I mean, do you know of anybody who has seen all of Romanek's video footage and has come to a conclusion that's compelling? Well, actually, I'd like to answer that in two parts. Uh, Please. Let me first, let me first explain uh, my involvement uh, with the Romanek case. I interviewed – Stan lives not too far from where I live. He's probably, you know, less than 20 minutes from my house. I went and interviewed him in 2007. I spent six hours at his home listening to him tell his story, uh, sitting in front of his computer, looking at the video. This is way before it was released publicly. Aliens in the window, looking at a number of other videos, orbs flying around, uh, looking at pictures of alleged aliens in his backyard, picture after picture after picture. And the more I looked at it, the more I thought, you know, this is an enorm enormous amount of evidence. Uh, we, MUFON would like to have access to it so we could uh, try to validate it. And so I posed that question to Stan. He refused to give me the, any of the video or photo evidence, citing the same reasons you talked earlier about his confidentiality agreement or whatever he was bound to. Right. And so, you know, I didn't want to walk away empty-handed after this long interview. So I said, okay, Stan, well, what do you want from MUFON then? Exactly what do you want from us? And he said, well, any time I have a future uh, incident, I would like MUFON to investigate. And I pledged that MUFON would do so. Now, recently, him and his wife have both gotten um, on both the Internet as well as uh, radio talk shows claiming that I refused to help him, that in this interview that I was at his house, that I just flat out rejected uh, or told him that MUFON would not offer any assistance. That's a blatant lie. So it, I'm, I'm very upset about that, that he and his wife are both lying in public about that because MUFON did offer to, to assist him. That, that's the first part of my answer. But let me, let me talk a little bit about uh, my other involvement in the investigation. I interviewed a number of the investigators who have worked in this case through the years, from George, George Zeiler here in Colorado to Deborah Lindemann to Leo Sprinkle. And... Uh, what I found, and this is, seems to be the pattern in, in with the Romanek case, is he embraces those investigators that bolter, bolster his case and support mm -hmm. his case, and he rejects right. those who don't. So he, there's, a, there's an active management of who is investigating his case. Now, he can cite all he wants uh, about his uh, confidentiality agreement, but to me it seems to be an active management uh, and so when you say, has anybody looked at his, uh, his video and his photos? Sure, but it's the folks that he, that he knows will support his, his claims. Uh, if he really wants his case to be validated, he should release all of his photos and videos publicly for impartial analysis by any number of third parties. And actually, the name of that person is Jerry Hoffman, who uh, is involved with the Colorado Film School. That was the person I was referring to, who is the one person who has in any way gone gone on record, at least early on, it seems like nowadays he's less associated with any of the analysis work. And, um, you know, when you have somebody who's supposedly doing analysis, you always have to question what their background is, what are their credentials. And it turns out that Jerry Hoffman is a, is a film editor. 
He's in no way a visual effects person. He's certainly not an image analyst. He's a film editor. And it was his opinion that, oh, this is, a, this is really interesting. And that was, that was sort of it. So that kind of, that sort of follows along with what you just said, James, in that anybody who is potentially capable of making an objective analysis of the video is essentially not given any access because at that point one has to assume that uh, Romanek and his uh, a secret backer, who, as it turns out, never never t- comes up in any of the interviews people uh, do with him, never comes up in any shows that are done about him. The Paracast, to my knowledge, James, is the only place that revealed that this guy's name is Clay Roberts, and he's the one that's put the gag order on Stan. And basically, Clay Roberts' motivation is to uh, fund, at least not actually not fund, but to uh, get funds to make a documentary about Stan and theoretically make a killing. Though I, one has to wonder, because what's pretty clear in this field is that no one's really made any huge amount of money off of it. That's the way it seems to us. So, uh, yeah, no credible image analyst, to, uh, to our knowledge, uh, no objective credible image analyst has ever looked at any of this data. Hi, this is Michelle from Namecheap. We don't have millions of dollars to get race car drivers or models to endorse us, but we will do everything we can to make those who buy domains or web hosting from us as happy as possible. We offer a free SSL as well as free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers or troublemakers. We won't bug you with obnoxious upsells when you check out or in your inbox. But most importantly, our customer service team really cares about you. It's what we pride ourselves in the most because it's your endorsement that means the most to us. If you like what you hear, get deals on both our domains and our web hosting at radio.namecheap.com, radio.namecheap.com, and be sure to play our contest by following us on Twitter. Thanks, Michelle. And by the way, listeners, please use the coupon code RADIODAY, that's RADIODAY, one word, for special discounts at Namecheap. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You hear it on TV, you hear it on radio, cash for gold. Yes, it's an enticing phrase during these challenging days, but the real question is how much cash are you going to get for your gold and silver? Are you going to get the best value? Well, you can get the best price from a company whose owners have decades of experience in the business. Welcome to Goldbug. The folks at Goldbug warn you that many of those high-budget gold buyers are paying far less than you deserve for your gold and silver. Goldbug will give you top dollar each and every time. To learn more, call one 866 596 That number again, one 866 596-6134 for Goldbug or visit us online at goldbug.com that's Goldbug with two G's goldbug.com 
Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely, enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with opportunities to stretch out and talk. We have James Carrion, International Director of MUFON. If you go to MUFON.com, you'll learn more about the organization, about their ongoing research, lots and lots of reports, and, of course, a way for you to join. It is a nonprofit organization. So we continue to pursue this Stan Romanek thing, but is it even worth any further attention if we've got gatekeepers who prevent us from getting any meaningful information or conduct any meaningful research? James? Well, you know, actually, it's interesting because I actually see the investigators involved in this case as some of those gatekeepers. Um, Gatekeepers just from the perspective that they ignore what's right in front of their eyes. So, for example, this whole controversy about the misspelled word uh, follow that has showed up in a number of Stan's own reports and third-party reports has been out there for everybody to see since Stan first started making his claims, but it, but has been completely ignored. Let me ask uh, you, what is the point and significance of this word? Where is it used, and why is the misspelling significant? Okay, so it first shows up when Stan files his own report with the National UFO Reporting Center. This is one of his very first sightings, and uh, he smell, misspells the word follow as F-A-L-L-O-W. What caught my eye is that on New Fork's website, you can go go to it right now and you can look up these reports, is an alleged third-party witness who claimed that he saw uh, Stan's van getting beamed by a UFO uh, in the middle of Denver. And in this alleged third-party report, uh, who somebody who has allegedly no uh, um, connection with connection, Stan, right. cover, is the same word misspelled. Now, I found that to be very intriguing. Well, when I received a copy of this uh, alleged Air Force document that Stan claims somebody put in his mailbox, the same word is misspelled. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. It gets better. If you get on the Jeff Rents website or on the ATS website, you're going to find postings by two different alleged physicists who both support Stan's claims, and both of those articles have the same word misspelled. Mm. Did anybody try contacting those physicists independently? to corroborate what they supposedly said about the Romanek case? Well, it's a good point. I have not been able to attract these people down as real people. So my mm. point to Stan and one of my um, uh, responses to him is, hey, let's l- let these people come forward and, and validate that they're real physicists with real credentials uh, and that the word follow is, is really uh, um, has, has no bearing on, on, on the case and it's not a red flag. He has yet to respond to that, and nobody has come forward claiming to be these people. There's an old um, New Yorker cartoon. It's one of the most famous New Yorker cartoons where there's a dog sitting on a computer and there's another dog uh, who's like looking at him and the dog on the computer turns to the to the dog looking at him and says, on the Internet, nobody knows you're a dog. <laughs> and uh, that's something that, yeah, there have been a number of postings uh, relating to the Romanek case, both in the, in the situations you've described, but also on, on the Internet. There have been a number of anonymous people who show up on different forums, and they've used that same exact misspelling, which seems awfully serendipitous. And really, when it comes right down to it, I'm I'm sure that if anybody took the time to gather the uh, the logs of those different places where that misspelling has been used, one would find that they probably all trace back to one IP number, and that would be Romanex computer. I have I have no doubt about that. And by the way, James. That's certainly nothing new to this particular case. There's another guy 
who is involved in the UFO world, who is, I'll, I'll go on record here and I'll say that the guy's an absolute charlatan and an idiot. We haven't really talked about him much on this show. He's certainly been a subject of uh, discussion on our forums. There's a self-proclaimed image analyst by the name of Ron Nusbeck, and he's the same poison. Same kind of stuff where he goes on these uh, different websites that allow him to publish his nonsense. And then in the comments fields of these articles online, you see all these different people, these different names, names of people that basically don't pan out anywhere else. And they all use his same incredibly stunted form of English. And he's the guy who claims he's a writer. He's one of the worst writers I've ever read. And his same poor grammar shows up in postings of people who are supposedly supporting him. So this is not like it's something that it's, that's in, in any way a, a new thing, and it's certainly not unique to the Romanek case. The supporters of Romanek, what do they say when you come up with this pretty obvious kind of a, a, of a clue that all of these pieces of information have been generated by Romanek? Well, you know, the power of belief is incredible. So those folks who have bought into a story... Uh, gloss over these these giant red flags, what I see as giant red flags in his case, and they simply ignore it. So again, mm. their, their belief persuasion uh, is what le leads them to that. Now, I should mention that there are more red flags in the Romanek case. And I'm not sure if you remember where he he made he makes claims or made claims that he was being called by some computerized voice. Yes. And um, it was somebody figured out that there's a website you can go to and type in text and it'll, it'll actually play it back in a computerized voice. And that was the, the source of, uh, of this voice. Uh, well, I was speaking to one of the prior investigators on his case, and they mentioned that that uh, they had never received a, a similar phone call because some of the investigators were also getting this computerized voice calling them. Well, the week that they mentioned that to Stan is the week that this investigator received a phone call from the computerized voice. Now, now, what the investigator did, being you know the intelligent person that they were, or they are, is they went ahead and they dialed back. I forget what the little key sequences you put on your phone to call the last number. Star 69. Yep. And guess who's, uh, whose phone rang? Oh. Uh. Yep, you, you guessed oh, it. Oh, man. So, again, these are red flags. Now, I'm, I'm the consummate skeptic. These raise concerns for me. But at the same time, as I've told uh, Stan numerous times uh, on, in, in, in my written responses, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Uh, maybe some of your claims are real. Maybe they're not. But the only way I can know that is to look at your data. So release your data. Release your right. video. Release your pictures. And we'll take it from there. And it just won't happen. I don't see it happening. Yeah. Well, and it's obvious why. He will release it in the form of a book that you can buy for money. That's how he'll release it. Basically, this has become, for him, his career choice. And it's interesting, James, when one starts to look into Romanek's background, and, and we did this on the Paracast. I mean, we did just a little bit of really basic research. It's, it's, it comes up pretty clear that this is a guy who is doing this both as a way to, to gain some attention uh, and sell some product. And when you're getting on television, when you've got Jeff Peckman going on the David Letterman show, showing your video, you know, people say there's no such thing as bad exposure, you know, as too much exposure. Ultimately, how many people will go and buy Romanek's book, which, by the way, I have actually seen on the shelf of a Barnes and Noble, which just made me feel nauseous because this is then what's put forward as legitimate stuff. And ultimately, one understands that. If one starts to look into the UFO phenomenon very closely and with a sober eye, it, it is pretty obvious that perfectly intelligent people are seeing highly anomalous things. 
and having very unusual experiences, which is what brings some of us into this field to begin with. And we haven't talked about your background yet. But in the case of Romanek, here's a guy who basically poisons the pool for those of us who are trying to have legitimate conversations. And, and it usually takes the same kind of a form where not only does he have photos that are highly questionable, not only does he have video that looks silly, no, there's more. There are messages. And there's kind of a whole messiah complex drawn around it where Romanek has been given access to information that even he can't understand that supposedly is, is going to help us move forward as a civilization, right? I mean, in, in, in your talking with him, did you see any of those materials, like those equations that supposedly he's been given? Oh, sure. He showed me a number of the equations. Uh, he showed me some of the uh, some some other videos where, you know, he claims he's been, um, you know, these orbs follow him around. There's poltergeist activity in his house. So there's a number of things happening around him. You know, the interesting thing about the case is that he may well indeed be having some real experiences. That may very well be. But if he's at the same time embellishing or fabricating evidence, well, the, the net sum of that is zero. So, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because he, he may actually have something real happening to him, but how can you distinguish uh, what's real and what's not if he's, if, he's, uh, if he's actually fabricating? Now, I'm just wondering here, James, do you think maybe you're granting him too much here to say maybe he had some experiences and he's being exploited by others or maybe he's participating in this exploitation to get his 30 minutes of fame? Do you think maybe you're being too generous here? Well, I, I'm not sure if I'm being too generous. I, I see it uh, kind of like uh, the case happened here recently with Balloon Boy, which now Fort Collins is forever known as the home of Balloon Boy. Oh, boy. Uh, the uh, father pleaded guilty yep. uh, to the charge. So here's a gentleman who already had his 15 minutes of fame. He was on a couple of, of um, reality TV shows, but it wasn't enough for him. He relished the limelight. He wanted more. So what did he do? He fabricated the story. So it's very well possible that maybe Romanek at some point in his life had some experience that was real, and that brought him some level of attention, but it wasn't enough. So he, he relishing the limelight, he had to up the ante and, and to keep adding to his story. Now, I'm not saying that's the case. I'm just saying that that's what the red flags are showing me right now. Uh, and until he can prove otherwise, then, then I think that's what most people are going to think about. So what's been the reaction of uh, your compatriots at MUFON, and certainly this Rick Nelson fellow, uh, seemed to feel that you were jumping the gun. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, keep in mind that the, the, field, the field of ufology is so polarized. I mean, we have folks who are on one end of the spectrum of belief. They're complete believers. For them, their mind is completely made up. And in fact, they're no different than the debunkers. Uh, because when your mind is made up, no amount of data is going to convince you otherwise. Right. So, so when some of the folks, within, even within MUFON, were shown these red flags uh, on the Romanek case, they simply could not bring themselves to believe it. Uh, and they ignored it. And, and their beliefs get in the way. Well, did, did, you, did they just not want to believe that they were potentially wrong about their conclusions about the case? Does this become a, an issue of personal ego? I, well, it may be ego, but it also may be because they've been around uh, Stan for a long time. They consider him a friend, they, and, and some of them have even claimed to have witnessed uh, anomalous activity around him. And my feeling on that is that uh, I've never... Uh, I was at his house for six hours. I, nothing extraordinary happened when I was there. That doesn't mean something extraordinary wouldn't happen if I stuck around longer. 
But the bottom line is you cannot rely on, on eyewitness experiences. You know, you can go to a Vegas magic show and that defies explanation. But that doesn't mean it's supernatural or doesn't mean it's something out of the ordinary. So those folks who, who claim they've had eyewitness experiences with Romanek and that, and that's why they, they so believe in him, you know, simply don't buy that. Uh, there's, there's evidence that has to be analyzed, the hard evidence. Mm-hmm. So besides that alien in the window video, which, as we've stated before, this, I don't think there's a credible researcher that feels that there's anything legitimate about that video. And the fact that Stan has put that video out there, um, besides that video, is there any other video evidence that he showed you that was in any way compelling? Well, there were, there were multiple different videos of the alien in the window. There wasn't just one. Oh, do tell uh, yeah, and there were also, um, there was at least two or three that I saw, uh, different uh, aliens. He also has a number of photographs that show alien-type figures in his backyard uh, or peering behind the bushes. Uh, a number of videos where orbs are streaking through his house or, or around him. And there's also, he showed me a number of videos or, of pictures where he claims something weird has happened to him physically, where you zoom into the pupil of his eye and it looks reptilian. So, um, yes, I've seen this. It, is it compelling? It's not compelling to me in the least because uh, with any basic computer and good software package, you can, you can get the same effects. Um, so I, not, n- there is simply no video or pictures anybody can produce in today's day that is compelling. Interesting, yes. Worthy of investigation, yes. But compelling, no. We'll have more compelling conversation in a moment. Hey neighbors, the old way to meet for business is over the phone or in person. The new better way is to meet clients and colleagues online with GoToMeeting. GoToMeeting is like meeting in person, but less time-consuming and less expensive. Start your meeting with just a click. Everyone can see your computer desktop on their computer screen, so they can follow along as you move from page to page. You can use GoToMeeting to host a sales presentation, a product demo, or a training session. Even collaborate on documents by sharing your screens. Our listeners can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. That's a month of unlimited online meetings free. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. James Carrion, International Director of MUFON, Mutual UFO Network at MUFON.com, where you can learn more information. It's a nonprofit organization. You could join. You can send a donation, etc. Before we get back to Stan Romanek and other things, James, what is your professional background? How did you get involved in what we call the UFO mess? Well, you know, I've been interested in UFOs since I was 11 years old. I can thank my mother uh, because she subscribed to all the tabloid publications. And um, so I, I would uh, cut out all the little newspaper clippings of aliens and UFOs. That's what, where my interest got started. As far as my professional background, well, I, you know, my educational background is I have a, a bachelor's degree in Russian language and a master's in international affairs. 
but what I do for a living, primarily other than run MUFON, is I run a computer company. I run a, a computer training company. I do have a background uh, in the military. I spent four years as a military intelligence analyst, a Russian linguist. Uh, and all of this actually has been very beneficial to being in this position. Uh, one of the things I was taught uh, in, in the Army, especially as a signals intelligence analyst, is how to distinguish the signal from the noise. And if there's any field that has a lot of noise and a very small signal, it's the UFO field. So I feel very fortunate that I, that I have some of that analytical background, uh, especially in this role. That's our slogan, James. You just hit it. Oh, absolutely. Separating signal from noise. Um, it's on our T-shirts. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Fact, send me your mailing address. I'll get you a T-shirt. Okay. Sounds great. <laughs> well, well no, have you wear one at one of the MUFON meetings. No, and we're not throw you out. no, we're not going to do that. No, but, but you're absolutely correct. Uh, what we've determined, and the reason that uh, perfectly reasonable people put their names on the line, being in, in, in any way associated with this topic, is that there is definitely signal in there. It's just covered up by a whole lot of noise. You know, when it comes to stuff like the Romanek case, um, again, if one takes things at face value, one comes away with one set of conclusions. If you start to dig into the backgrounds of some of these people, and now at this point in my life, I kind of think I, I missed an opportunity being a private investigator. Because what you start to uncover are things that really make you question what people's motivations are. I mean, in the case of Romanek, you know, looking into his background, then finding out about this Clay Roberts guy, that there's a person behind the scenes who is is forcing secrecy and is doing so with a clear set of financial motivations in place, then at that point, one, I think that even if there's a possibility that, like in the Romanek case, that there might be the tiniest bit of signal in all of that noise, essentially it has to be discarded pretty much in, in its entirety because there's such a long trail of junk related to this particular guy and his claims and it was this was like the thing with uh, with jeff peckman where peckman shows up sort of out of nowhere grabs this thing starts to run with it and then all one had to do and we're not talking about any kind of in-depth research james i mean all one had to do was uh, do a, a cursory search on the web in the case of peckman and one comes up with the metatron harmonizer which is, uh, you know, his product that would allow you to achieve godliness with a device the size of a credit card. <laughs> and he was selling this thing, and it's like, okay, I think we're done here. Because people's backgrounds really do play quite heavily into this. And one of the things that we've noticed on the Paracast is some of the people making some of the most outrageous claims and taking some of the most visible positions in the field are, in many cases, people who have no verifiable backgrounds or at, at, at the best murky backgrounds and this is something that keeps occurring over and over now in your case it seems like you you do have a real background and you do have a real degree and gene and i both have a, a, a verifiable backgrounds in high tech so you know we're not people who have just appeared out of nowhere uh and and we're trying to ask reasonable questions about this now um, one of the things that I see in some of your biomaterial is that you spent some time uh, growing up down in Puerto Rico, right? Correct. All right. So you and I share uh, some of this in that I actually spent a number of years growing up in Venezuela, where I, I actually did have some pretty extreme paranormal experiences, including a very extreme UFO experience I've spoken about here on the show. Just getting away from the nonsense from it, let's get back to some signal in all of this noise, <laughs> What's going on down in Puerto Rico? We've heard about some very, very anomalous stuff 
emanating from that island. What's what's going on down there? Well, I, I think the uh, Puerto Rico itself has had a long history of, of UFO activity. Um, and, and I think most people will, will probably remember it's also where the whole chupacabra phenomena originated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, of course, there, there, there are a number of folks who have seen strange craft not only flying over the island, uh, but also emerging in and out of the waters around uh, Puerto Rico. So quite a bit of USO activity. I have a right. friend of mine who's a helicopter pilot down there. And uh, he told me about some of his own personal sightings that occurred while he was flying uh, people around the island. So yes, quite a bit of activity and uh, quite a bit, quite a bit of strange paranormal type activity as well in terms of this chupacabra phenomena. Um, if you can remember back uh, when that first hit the news. Um, but I also find it interesting that, and I don't know if this this is more of a sociological type event that, especially with the chupacabra activity. Uh, it seems to be limited to those areas that are uh, are Latin countries or areas even in the United States where there's a there's a heavy Latin population like in Miami or in Texas. I'm not sure what to make of that because if the chupacabra activity is what it is, if it's real, uh, should it not be more widespread? And and so I, I find that to be interesting and, and something worthy of looking at. Um, but yeah, Puerto Rico itself definitely a hotbed of activity. There have been some some really disturbing um, entity cases in recent years out of there. There's and I don't know, I don't have the information right in front of me, but there's one particular case involving a mother and a daughter. You might have heard about this. Um, seeing these creatures looking into their windows, they had actually seen some stuff flying in and out of the water near their home. Does this ring a bell at all, James? It does. Uh, I forget the the woman's name, but she has corresponded with MUFON in the past. She has. Yeah, that's some very, very scary stuff. And I I gather she's not the only one that's had that level of experience. Uh, One of the things that seems pretty clear, though, is that um, South American countries have historically had tremendous amount of not only UFO activity, but other types of paranormal activity. And typically in the first world, we're, we're very quick to write that all off, saying, well, You've got less sophisticated populations. You know, you have stuff where uh, you've got people who haven't been exposed to the media the way they have here, and so their their ability to filter what they're seeing is not as good. And yet, there's some of us who take the exact opposite stance and say, if you have people who have haven't had exposure to television, and then they're all of a sudden they're reporting things that sound a heck of a lot like things we've heard about in places where there is media exposure regards to this topic. That would almost indicate that they are seeing something or experiencing something legitimate. Like the uh, show we had recently with A.J. Gavard, we were talking about uh, the Kolaris incident. You know, you had these craft terrorizing people. And right. these were people who lived in an area where they didn't really know about this stuff. They didn't have much media exposure to the UFO topic. Um, and yet there was something highly physical, highly real going on down there. And it definitely seemed malevolent. Um Actually, the Colaris episode is almost unique to Brazil. I don't think in the United States we have anything even close to that unless one takes into account cattle mutilations. And, and I think the jury's still out on what potentially is really going, going on with cattle mutilations. But um, the whole South American thing has been true for a number of years. I mean, we go back to the 50s. There was a tremendous amount of activity down there. But at the same time, there's also a tremendous amount of, t- of activity out, out of Europe. I mean, there was a UFO flap in France in, I think, like, 53 or 54 that was significant. And certainly nobody would call France a third-world country. 
I, I would agree. You know, and it's interesting you bring up Calaris because you know the, the, the poor folks down there that were subject to that activity and who re, who were killed or received uh, burn marks uh, from these craft uh, seems to have been uh, unique to Brazil, as you said. But I, I do want to mention a case that came up recently here in the U.S. It's a, it's a, it was investigated by MUFON. It happened in North Carolina uh, within the last month. There was a gentleman who, whose son was camping out in their own backyard, and he walked out of his house to check on his son in, his, in the tent. And as he was going back into the house, he looked up, and above his home, he saw a triangle craft hovering. So he, walked, he went into, the, into his home, came back out with a high-powered Q-beam flashlight, and he showed it on the craft. And the craft responded by uh, sending a beam of light that hit him in the back of the neck and burned him. Hmm. And, and then subsequently, he, he had some some uh, some medical effects from it. What's interesting about that incident is uh, MUFON investigators had, had made an appointment to go see him and uh, to get his testimony. And before MUFON showed up earlier that morning, two gentlemen showed up in suits. Uh, you know, wanted to know about his story, did not identify themselves. He thought they were MUFON investigators. In fact, they were not. Uh, they sat down on his sofa, and, and, and as one of the gentlemen, his jacket was opened, he could see that he was carrying a sidearm. And then they threatened him. So here we have a classic men in black tale occurring here in the U.S. after, after um, this incident. So, yeah, Calaris itself is, is unique, but uh, we do see on occasion uh, those type of events happening here. And what was the context of them threatening him? What did they threaten him with exactly? They well, threatening in, in terms of he should not tell anybody about what he saw. You know, they didn't they didn't threaten him with physical harm. They basically said just keep your mouth shut. Or what? I don't think there was an or what. I think it was oh. just keep your mouth shut. Hmm. Yeah, apparently he didn't. No, right? I mean, he came he came to you guys and filed a report. Well, our investigators met up with him later that day, and, and then he he said, "Well, I thought you guys had come earlier because this happened." To oh, okay. Um, has there been follow-up with him? The fact that he spoke, did it bring any bad things upon him? Uh, not that we're aware of. No, n nothing so far. Hmm. All right. And what, I mean, in your personal opinion, because we talk about this a lot on the show, you know, what is the nature of cover-up? You know, if you have people showing up at his home with weapons, who do you think those people really are? I mean, again, not MUFON stance, your personal stance. What do you think that's all about? Well, I think that there are there are some claims of, of folks that are being persecuted that are um, based out of mental illness, folks who are paranoid, uh, who suffer from schizophrenia, and so on. Right. Uh, there are other claims that are that are legitimate. You know, this has intrigued me for a long time. Who are these people? Who are these alleged men in black? Are they are they a government organization? Are they quasi government? Are they private industry? And I started looking, uh, doing some of my own personal research, uh, especially into the early days of, of UFO activity. And what you know, I you raise a big issue here because we haven't really talked Men in Black much on the show, hardly at all. And we've been on for what nearly four years. And now you've got me curious. I'm sure David's curious. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. 
to subscribe, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have James Carrion, International Director of MUFON, Useful UFO Network. The specter, the ugly specter of the men in black has been raised. So you did research, James, into earlier UFO encounters, and you found evidence of this men in black phenomenon there? Well, you know, it's it's actually a, a very intriguing story. I just came back from the Crash Retrieval Conference in Las Vegas where I delivered a talk called uh, Russian Espionage and UFOs. I started looking back uh, towards the very earliest stories, and we're talking Kenneth Arnold's story, for example. And what I what I found is that two weeks before Kenneth Arnold had his sighting, there was international news that was made about an alleged top-secret research project that belonged to the Allies that was bigger and more potent than the atomic bomb. This, this hit all the major newspapers around the world. There were two major figures that were involved in that story. One was a New Zealand uh, scientist, and the other one was an American scientist that allegedly worked on this project. And they were very coy, and they were very secretive about what the project was, but they did confirm that there was a, a real project. Now, what the press did is they went wild and speculated about what this weapon could be, and based on the educational background of the New Zealand scientists, they determined it must be an airborne weapon. So here we have, being leaked to the news, a top-secret project, bigger than the atomic bomb, possibly airborne, and that hit the news two weeks before Kenneth Arnold had his sighting. Now, I found that extremely intriguing. So I started looking into the details of this project, and what I found out was that these two gentlemen, the American and the New Zealander, did work on a real top-secret project during World War II. It was called Project SEAL. It had nothing to do with an airborne device. It was actually a project that was looking at how to use uh, explosives, underwater explosives, to trigger artificial tsunamis, which in itself is intriguing. Hmm. Um, and I was able to get access to the now declassified report on that project. Now, what I found in that declassified report was even more intriguing because the, the research was conducted from 1944 to 1945, but it was terminated in early 45. Here we have in 1947, June of 1947, two of the people that worked on the project claiming that it was ongoing and that it was still active, even though they both knew the project was killed two years earlier. So I started putting, piecing things together, and what, what I have come to believe, and this is my theory, is that basically this project was leaked for effect. Somebody was trying to convince the Russians that if their UFOs were flying over American airspace, they were ours, that they were a top-secret American project. So, so my feeling is that this top-secret project was a deception operation, essentially, uh, something... Uh, uh, on the, the grand scale of some of the major deception operations that were perpetrated during World War II against the Nazis. Uh, very intriguing. Since I've delivered that talk, it's, it's been interesting because 
a lot of folks say, well, we simply don't believe it. How can this possibly be related to the UFO phenomena? Well, I, I find there's a definite relationship. And as I started looking even deeper into the Kenneth Arnold story, I think I found more evidence that confirms that there was some active management on the part of some government organization into uh, Kenneth Arnold's own experience. And I don't know, a lot of folks don't know that Kenneth Arnold not only was the first person to see or, or to have his claims of seeing a UFO uh, hit the mass media, but he was also the very first ufologist. After he had a sighting, he was, he was paid by a Pulp Fiction magazine to go investigate the Maury Island incident that happened weeks earlier. Of course, uh, Ray Palmer. Ray Palmer, exactly. Right. What a lot of folks don't know is that unless they, they, they read about the Maury Island incident and Kenneth Arnold's investigation, is that there was a lot of strange activities that happened to Arnold on his investigation trip. And that involved some of the major, the, the major things that you find in ufology, like men in black. The Maury Island incident had the very first men in black visitation that was documented there by one of the, the Maury Island witnesses. So it seems to me that that somebody, and I, my, my feeling is that uh, so these are probably counterintelligence forces, were manipulating Arnold and were using Arnold uh, because they, they wanted to know who on the other side was also interested in UFOs. If the Russians were interested and, and if they were, you know, it could have been some sort of uh, counter-spy operation if, to try to flesh out some of the moles that, that were in government or in other areas of government. And let me explain why I, I believe that to be part of it. If you read carefully Kenneth Arnold's uh, book, The Coming of the Saucers, one of the strange things that happened to him when he was investigating Maury Island was he flew unannounced to Tacoma. He was going to meet with the Maury Island witnesses. So he got in his private plane, flew there unannounced. When he got to Tacoma, he needed a place to stay. And when he started calling around to all the different hotels, they were all booked. Something was happening in town. So yeah, th this came up. We, uh, Gene, wasn't it the uh, Kurt Southerly episode where we talked in depth right, about this? Right. We had Kurt Southerly, who's yeah. obviously an author of UFOs, been following this for years. And he has delved deeply into the Maury Island case as well. And he mentioned to us what is in the book. I remember reading the book. And I never met Kenneth Arnold. I did know Ray Palmer. I read that section where Arnold comes to town and they have a hotel in his name. Of course, that implies also that hotel was being surveyed by someone or some entity or being or agency. Well, it was not just surveyed. It was, the room was bugged. Right. If you read his tale in the book, while they were conversing about the Maury Island incident, they get a phone call from a local newspaper reporter who says, hey, guys, I understand you're meeting about UFOs. And, our, and, and Arnold says, well, how do you know that? He says, well, I just got a mystery caller who called in and told me word for word everything you're saying in your room. And, and right. they knew that it wasn't the Maury Island witnesses who had made the phone call, so they assumed that the room was bugged. Now, now why is this happening at the very onset of the phenomena, at the very beginning of the phenomena, unless there's some, there was, there was some active uh, intervention or active manipulation by some forces? So, so my feeling, this tied together with my research on this earlier project, leads me to believe that there was some sort of counterintelligence operation. They really wanted to get the Russians in interested in believing that UFOs were an American weapon. Uh, also, if you read Kenneth Arnold's book, you'll notice that when he was visited by the two counterintelligence agents uh, from Hamilton Field that later died in, 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 the, in the bomber crash when they were investigating Maury Island, they came to his home. And what they took away with them was some of Kenneth Arnold's mail. See, after his sighting, and this made the mass media, a number of people from the public were writing to Arnold, asking him questions. But what, what you'll note of interest in the book is that the mail that they took 
was from organizations. They were interested in knowing which organizations were corresponding with Arnold. So it, to me, it seemed like a classic counter-intel operation. You know, let's figure out who, you know, if the Russians are really interested in this subject. Well, the other question that it then raises is the theory that maybe some of the UFO sightings, especially at the end of World War II, after the end of World War II, may have indeed been secret weapons, and that even raises the possibility about Roswell. Could Roswell have been some kind of secret weapon, not aliens? Right. Yeah, I would. Uh, it seems uh, too highly convenient that we have... Uh, Kenneth Arnold has a sighting on June 24th, and less than two weeks later, we already have a crashed saucer on the ground. My personal theory, this is my theory, and, and, and I'm doing further research to prove it, is that this was a grand deception operation. This was a deception operation, again, on the same level of those that we perpetrated against the Nazis and trying to convince them we weren't going to attack on D-Day when we were attacking uh, through the southern flank, uh, Operation Minchmeat, and some of these other things we perpetrated. There was some active manipulation going on. So, so it seems to me that it was grand deception on a large scale, and Roswell could very well have been part of that. So we're going to guess that this hasn't made you a ton of friends in the mainstream UFO world, right? <laughs> Absolutely not. When I delivered the speech at, in, in uh, Vegas, uh, we had a Q&A uh, session after that, and there were very few questions. There were lots of comments, uh, comments of disbelief, comments of how could you possibly believe this. Roswell is real. There were bodies. There were witnesses. Uh, and, and I don't think folks, unless you've studied intelligence history, uh, they don't understand that one way to convince your enemy that, that something is real is to convince your own people that it's real. So if there were a few, very few folks at the top that were planning this deception operation and, and Roswell around it, uh, of course, you could, if you're convincing your own people that something extraordinary has happened, from the pilots who flew the wreckage to Fort Worth, uh, to the military police that you put out there on the perimeter. Well, if you're convincing them something extraordinary is happening, of course you're going to be able to convince your enemy. Well, and let's just qualify this, James. You're not trying to say that that means that all UFO activity is in some way some kind of a disinformation exercise. You're saying that there is a history of this kind of weird confusion regarding the UFO topic and intelligence operations going back to the very beginning. Exactly. And I, I think one of the precedents for this is actually the ghost rockets that were flying over Sweden. If you study the ghost rocket period, um, you're going to notice that there was a lot of interest on the part of the U.S. government in, in terms of what was happening there. Now, mm -hmm. behind it, I'm not sure. There are some, there are some memos that, have, that were flying back and forth between military attaches to Washington that were saying that the Swedes were behind it. They mm -hmm. were the ones pushing the ghost rocket mystery because they wanted the U.S. involved to try to, to, to buffer them from what they perceived as a threat from the Soviet Union. It seems to be glossed over. Everybody wants to tie everything neatly together, you know, from ancient history till, till modern-day UFOs. And so they, most folks in ufology tie the ghost rockets into, uh, into flying saucers. Well, you think and, maybe that's one of the big problems here is that we've tried to shoehorn so many things into it's got to be spaceships and nothing else that they're we're not paying attention to the possibility that the UFO mystery may have many causes depending on what you look at. What about the Foo Fighters? Would we also call them possible secret weapons? Well, I, I'm not sure about the Foo Fighters and how that, that's involved, but again, folks will tie it into the chronology of UFOs. Um, but, you know, I think, I think it was Chris Carter who got this phenomena right on the X-Files. I don't know if you remember that X-Files episode where 
this elderly couple are driving down a county road, and this triangular craft comes out of nowhere, and all of a sudden aliens are on the ground, these little greys, they abduct these, these, this elderly couple. But then, in the next scene, a much larger UFO comes down and abducts everybody, the elderly couple and the greys. Uh, and then later on, they see they they show the Greys are really Air Force people in disguise. So so the question is, who's emulating who here? Is there a real phenomena that exists that's emulating, uh, kind of like you know, uh, life imitates art uh, or art imitates life? The 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 bottom line is, we, you know, there could be very well a real phenomena out there, but we do know that there's this constant thread of, of deception and disinformation that plays through it. Well, you know, one thing that occurs to me is some of the early involvement of the military in Major Kehoe's UFO organization, NICAP. Of course, all of Major Kehoe's sources, and I don't say anything against the man. I met him a few times. He seemed awfully nice, and he seemed sincere to me, totally sincere. But you kind of think here, he populates this organization, NICAP, with loads and loads of retired military people, including a former head of the CIA, and you wonder... What function did NICAP serve then? Were they delivering authentic UFO information or just muddying the waters? Sure, absolutely. It's it's um, it's definitely interesting. Um, and and one of the things that I'm a big believer in is that uh, the only way we're ever going to get at the heart of this phenomena to know what's true and what's real is to eliminate what the role of government has been in ufology. If we're not able to do that, if we can't rule those folks out then we simply can't get at the truth. It's, it's impossible to get to the truth uh, because of how government forces have used the field of ufology for their own purposes, whether it's counterintelligence or psychological warfare or to obscure their own black exotic projects. Um, we're heavily manipulated, and, and we need to know what that manipulation is. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody on this show is going to disagree with you about that. <laughs> uh, and and sadly, of course, that's going to lead us to our next question, which we might have to wait for the next hour to uh, get into, which is, so then, what are your thoughts about the whole disclosure movement? But perhaps that needs to wait for the next hour, Gene. You know what? We should move into just one more thing before we let this go and let this die, and that is in terms of separating the signal from the noise, the wheat from the chaff, one of the other cases that I've always felt might have some kind of government involvement is that of Barney and Betty Hill. And I mentioned this when we had, of course, Stanton Friedman on the show and Betty Hill's niece. And, of course, they took exception to this, but I mentioned it, and I continue to mention it, the fact that we see Barney and Betty Hill live near a military base. Their friends are all in the military. And it looks to me, well, if the military is engaging in psychological warfare during the 50s and 60s especially, and we know about all the cases and all the things, whether it's possible that the Barney and Betty Hill case was. Even though supposedly the progenitor of abduction cases, it's also very different in many respects. Maybe it was some kind of military psychological experiment. And we only have like a minute or two before we go to hour two, James, but do you have any feeling about that? And we can expand upon it in hour two. Sure, uh, you know that is interesting. Uh, I I'm not, was not aware of, about the uh, their close friends being in the military, but but I've all, often thought about the abduction phenomena and, and how much of it is uh, of a extraordinary nature and how much of of it is related to terrestrial involvement. Uh, but if you look at the history of, of what the CIA, CIA was involved with with MK Ultra, 
and other psychological manipulation programs, we simply can't rule that out. I mean, there may be some substance to to military involvement. Something we'll have to look at in part two of the PowerCast. James, before we switch over to part two, tell our listeners where they can get more information about MUFON. Uh, you can find out more about MUFON by going to our website at www.mufon.com, M-U-F-O-N.com. Uh, and it's a fairly comprehensive website. You can report your UFO sightings. Uh, you can download brochures on the organization. You can join the organization. And you can find out how to become an investigator and uh, help us in our search for truth. Very good. James Carrion, International Director of MUFON, will return with Part 2 of the Paracast. You hear it on TV. You hear it on radio. Cash for gold. Yes, it's an enticing phrase during these challenging days, but the real question is how much cash are you going to get for your gold and silver? Are you going to get the best value? Well, you can get the best price from a company whose owners have decades of experience in the business. Welcome to Goldbug. The folks at Goldbug warn you that many of those high-budget gold buyers are paying far less than you deserve for your gold and silver. Goldbug will give you top dollar each and every time. To learn more, call 1-866-596-6134. That number again, 1-866-596-6134 for Goldbug. Or visit us online at goldbug.com. That's Goldbug with two Gs. Goldbug.com. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. James Carrion, he's International Director of MUFON, that's the Mutual UFO Network, a long-time investigative body in the field around for 40 years in a field where people come and go, you're still here, and maybe that's a question to ask before we go back to all the other stuff that surrounds us. How is MUFON still remaining in business after all these years? The average life of a UFO organization is what? three to five years? Well, I'm, I'm not sure about, about the three to five year lifespan. I think the reason MUFON is still here is, is really due to the, to the um, uh, excellent administrative skills and uh, Walt Andrus and John Schusler, the co-founders of the organization. They knew what mistakes NICAP made and, and uh, APRO made, and, and they were bound to determine that MUFON would not repeat them. So by setting up the organization as a grassroots organization with decentralized leadership, has kept MUFON going, and um, what str- essentially it boils down to strong leadership. So I think Walt Andrus in his 30-year tenure did an excellent job at keeping the organization running and, and going smoothly. Uh, John Schuster continued that, and you know I took over in uh, 2006 from John, uh, and and I think MUFON will always uh, survive because of the, uh, the leadership uh, that's in place. Looking at the failures of NICAP and the failure of APRO, Specifically, what do you think they did wrong? Well, it's it's interesting because with NICAP, uh, most I think most folks uh, think that there was some infiltration of the CIA and and poor management of uh, finances that brought it down. Uh, with APRO, I think it was had more to do with the, it being a cult of personality that surrounded the Lorenzans, and and they ran things with an iron fist. And so when when they passed away, the organization passed away with them. I'll tell you something. I met Carl Lorenzen back in the seventies. Now Jim Lorenzen was a really really nice guy, but she held things together with an iron hand. She could be rude. She could be sarcastic, and she remembered something I did back in the days of the case of the Sakaro UFO sighting, okay? 
And of course, we've been talking about that recently because of the death of the witness, Lonnie Zamora. So here's what happens. I had a small UFO magazine. I was a teenager. I reproduced a picture from Fate magazine. And it turned out the Lorenzans paid to have that picture taken. So what do they do? They send me a bill for $100. <laughs> and I said, you know what? Don't we have a little fair use here? I'm happy to do it. I'm just you know, trying to put out a magazine and spread information. Why is this important to you? And she still hated me like 10, 15 years later. You're so easy to hate. That's the thing. Well, that's it. That's it. And and she sure did. I mean, she still remembered it. That's still stuck in her gut. So we understand that. It's kind of a cult of personality. So you don't let that happen over at MUFON. No, absolutely not. Uh, I think that one of the other strengths of MUFON is we have a very, very solid uh, leadership board, a business board made of, so, of some great folks that have been in the field for a long time. Ego doesn't play a factor here. Everybody is interested in the, in the welfare and the well-being of the organization and, uh, and our, our long-term survivability. So I'm very proud that uh, we have uh, such great people uh, that uh, represent MUFON, and I think that's what's going to really keep us going. What I like in listening here is the fact that some of the sacred cows of the UFO field, you're looking at, you know, with a jaundiced eye, maybe there are other explanations like Roswell. Of course, I mentioned the Hills, the possible military involvement, something maybe you haven't considered, but, you know, I'm a little older than you, I think, so I've considered these possibilities. But what about if we look at some of the earlier cases, even the legendary or <laughs> infamous book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers? from the late Gray Barker. He talked about Albert K. Bender being confronted by three men in black. You think that was all a fantasy or what? You know, I'm, I'm not really sure about the Bender case. I haven't uh, done enough research to, to really make a determination one way or the other. But we do have some excellent early cases. I mean, I, I think that Kenneth Arnold's case uh, still uh, stands the test of time. I think Kenneth uh, was as honest a person as they come. Uh, even if you read his book, you know, that, that honesty comes out, not to mention that everything he states in his book is completely backed up by detailed FBI memos that were, were later released. So there, there are some impeccable cases. I think the Socorro case was one of those, even though there was some later debunking going on, recent debunking going on about that. Right, right. Um, so there are good cases, and then you know, there are not so good cases. But I think what a lot of folks fail to understand about this field is that it is so easy to create UFO myth. It makes me wonder about some of these other cases out there that are not as well documented, whether or not somebody did the, the proper homework uh, to, to do investigation. It's, it's a very easy thing to do to, to create new mythology. Think, think, for example, about Stan Romanek's case. If nobody had called into question, or, or let's say that the, the, the follow issue had never, had never come up because he used a spell checker, you know, would this go pass into UFO myth as, as a good case? You know, it makes me really wonder about some of these past cases. Well, based on the, the evidence he's presented so far, just based on the visual evidence, he really doesn't have much. And one of the things that I've noticed about, and not to get back to Romanek, but he always talks about these other co-witnesses. Question for you, did you interview any of these other co-witnesses, James, that were not A, his family, or B, close friends of his? No, because most of them were related to him, except that he had an incident in uh, one of the Denver parks where he was videotaping and he saw this object in the sky and he calls these other people over and he videotapes them corroborating his sighting. But that particular sighting is interesting because it, al it almost seems like he's, he's egging them on. Hey, look at what I'm seeing in the sky. Can you see that? Mm. 
you know, it's, it's not like they're independently uh, videotaping it and, and coming and reporting at a later time. He's involved in it. You have to wonder also, is this a one shot or are multiple shots where you see a reaction from the people and then you see the alleged object? Uh, I can't remember exactly whether or not he was panning back and forth between the two, but, but it seemed to be a little too a little too good to be true in terms of how he was uh, he was involving himself in it. You know, we've often here on the show spoken about, as you brought up earlier, James, this issue of photographic and video evidence not really being useful anymore because of the ease with which it can be either manipulated or simply created from scratch. One of the things we've discussed on the show is perhaps defining a new approach and a new standard. And as far as, you know, being that you're so involved with MUFON, I'd like to propose this to you as where there should be a field protocol by where if there is a situation where there's an active sighting going on and there are multiple witnesses, it would be so incredibly useful to have two things going on as sort of standard procedure, which is that two people put themselves in two different horizontal and vertical positions with respect to the object and shoot video with some common landmarks in sight in both videos so that we can determine some parallax about all of this. And this is one of the things that was really useful when Bruce McAbee did his analysis of the, 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 the Trent family McMinnville UFO photos in that there were a couple of photos taken from different heights and different positions that allowed him to do a useful triangulation and parallax study to be able to determine that the object was a certain distance from the camera and was at a certain was of a certain size. Put that into place, number one. And then number two, in the current era of Photoshop, After Effects, and post-processing, let me then have a third camera person who is either taking still images or videotaping the other two people who are shooting the object. Let me have footage of them shooting the object taken by a third party. So at that point, when you start talking about video evidence, you have so much more complexity to the data, and it would be much, much harder at that point to debunk that kind of visual evidence. I think that should be something that you guys should think about as far as the standard protocol, where it's practical. But if you have crews going out doing active research, if let's say there's a hot spot, there's a bunch of activity being seen, you should indeed think about deploying something like this where, like I said, you don't have to rely on the visual evidence generated by one capture device. You can have multiple capture devices, and that allows you to do some useful triangulation. I understand. I, I see exactly what you're saying. Yeah, I think that would be useful. Hopefully something shows up, which is usually our problem. <laughs> we hit a hot spot, and then the activity ceases. No, I think those are all very good observations. Let me explain a little more about the photo and video evidence and how difficult it is to prove it as uh, as, as a fake. I don't know if you, if you followed uh, when MUFON was doing our investigation for the Discovery Channel. We did a three-hour miniseries for them and went down to Mexico. Uh, there were some very good UFO photos that came out of Nayarit, Mexico, and Jaime Malsan was, was touting these as the real deal. And... I went down there and, and did the investigation personally. It was, it was, you can, you can actually watch the videos that occasionally air. And the first thing that struck me was the inconsistency of the witness testimony. Mm -hmm. uh, so you always, you know, as a good investigator, you go in, you look for red flags. And the immediate red flag was how inconsistent the witness was in terms of the dates that he allegedly took these, where he was at, and so on. So as I started looking at the, the, the photo evidence, 
you know, I don't have the technical skills to to really uh, figure out whether, uh, you know, somebody did some good photoshopping or not. But I did find some experts who could. And one of those experts is actually here locally in town. He's a world-renowned uh, photographic uh, and, and uh, digital photography expert. In fact, he's he's heavily used by the departments of defense. Uh, and I give him the the photos, and he did an impartial analysis. This guy has no interest in UFOs whatsoever. He just put it through his standard algorithms that he uses when he's analyzing any other type of photo, and he showed them to be fakes. Now, you would think that with such technical analysis that Jaime Malsan would have come out and said, okay, these are fake photos. No, he still mm -hmm. is real. So it, 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 I'm flabbergasted that when even when the clear evidence is presented, that people simply don't want to believe it. Hi, this is Michelle from Namecheat. We don't have millions of dollars to get race car drivers or models to endorse us, but we will do everything we can to make those who buy domains or web hosting from us as happy as possible. We offer a free SSL as well as free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers or troublemakers. We won't bug you with obnoxious upsells when you check out or in your inbox. But most importantly, our customer service team really cares about you. It's what we pride ourselves in the most because it's your endorsement that means the most to us. If you like what you hear, get deals on both our domains and our web hosting at radio.namecheap.com radio.namecheap.com and be sure to play our contest by following us on Twitter. Thanks, Michelle. And by the way, listeners, please use the coupon code RADIODAY, that's RADIODAY, one word, for special discounts at Namecheap. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Clear evidence that we have James Carrion, the international director of MUFON. In the case of Mossan, Mossan never met a piece of video evidence he didn't like. And what's sad about that is that there's been some fairly compelling evidence that has gone through his hands that ends up getting mixed up with some of the garbage that goes through his hands. And, and in Jaime's case, he's not a researcher. He is an entertainer. He's a TV personality. And so what you have in Mexico is a situation where anybody who gets footage, they instantly think of him because of his media exposure and the fact that everybody associates his name with UFO research. That's why people take stuff to him, whether or not it's anomalous or not. We've actually tried to get Mossan on the show a number of times. It's been a thing where he's agreed to come on, then all of a sudden he disagrees to come on. Then I'll see him in an expo, help him with technical problems with one of his cameras, will then start speaking Spanish. He then looks at my name tag, realizes who I am, says, oh, you know, I've meant to be, I've been, I've been meaning to come on your show. And I say, okay, we'll come on the show. And then, of course, there's no follow-up. He doesn't come on the show. He knows. He knows what we're going to do with him. He knows we're going to pin him about certain things that he's either exaggerated or cases that he's actively promoted that we know to be junk. And, and this is just a, a constant problem with dealing with people who are quote unquote personalities 
in this field, uh, they basically end up having a vested interest and they can't break away from that interest. And like, like again, in the case of Mossan, every piece of video evidence that he presents on his TV show, he always has this very dramatic thing where he goes, this is it. This is the smoking gun. This is absolutely irrefutable. And he'll show something and then there's never follow up. You know, there's never, and, and, and this is something that he's learned a lot, I think, by the kinds of media techniques that have been very well honed by American media entities. So often you have a story, it's presented breathlessly, and then there's no follow-up. You know, things sort of, sort of fade away. He's very good at that. So with Mossan, it's very frustrating because, well, at the same time, like you're identifying here, there's some evidence that comes through him that's real problematic. He also gets a hold of some video footage that's that's really fascinating. And and sadly, in the case of Mexico City, uh, since I think like about 91, there has been a UFO flap that certainly went on for a good solid decade that has almost no equivalent anywhere in the world in terms, in, in terms of the amount of activity and the amount of video and, and still evidence that was captured. I would agree that that uh, that there's a lot of activity probably happening in Mexico. One of the things though that we encountered when we were down there uh, is that I'm not sure if you're aware that Jaime has a paid group of folks that he calls los vigilantes. That what they do is they sit around and they look to the skies constantly, looking for something, and they videotape it and they provide it to Jaime. And when we uh, sat down with one of his his best photographers, I asked the guy point blank, "Do you get a bonus when you give Jaime something good?" And he said, "Yes, mm -hmm. I get a bonus." So there's a conflict of interest here. Uh, and then subsequently, we, we we figured out the gentleman had problems distinguishing anomalous objects from balloons in the sky, um, mm -hmm. which came up the show, for which MUFON was also heavily criticized for. So the, the bottom line is that these folks who are the folks that are in uh, Jaime's employ are not the casual witness. They're not the casual observer. They have a vested interest in, in, in getting something on film, and I have a problem with that personally. You know what? Well, we, we did not know about that. We, we were not aware of that. Now, that's, to me, what you just said is smoking gun stuff. It really is. So you have to question his entire, uh, the entire motivation of people that are gathering evidence for him. That's, oh, man. Whew. Well, I think that, if anything, our investigation in Mexico showed that people have, there in Mexico have a passion for the subject. He is a celebrity. We were in western Mexico, and, and we, we were walking um, down the street, and people were honking and, and, and calling him out by name. Mm -hmm. This guy is more well-known than probably most celebrities here in the U.S. The big problem I have with Jaime at this point is that after we did our investigation of three cases in Mexico, which we thought were very thorough and very fair, because it ended up being critical of him, because he was, he was promoting them, he came out, uh, and on his show, Tercer Milenio, he criticized MUFON in probably two or three episodes as doing performing shoddy investigation, going down there and uh, being racist and, you know, we're against the Mexican people, and which I found all to be in very poor taste. And, you know, but still trying to be as professional as I am, I said, hey, listen, Jaime, I'm going to uh, send you this report on these Nayarit photos, and if I can conclusively show that they've been faked, will you come out and tape another show and correct your criticisms of MUFON? And he said, of course I'll do that. Of course, when he got the report uh, from me, he, he did not come out with a show that was supportive of Google. So he, he did not keep his promise. He just ran away when he had to backtrack. He won't retract anything. Correct. 
Okay, that's unfortunate. Maybe we should also start focusing on some of the more positive cases as we don't have an awful lot of time left. But I'm just wondering here before we get to that, we've been talking about potential military or intelligence influence in certain UFO cases. So what about the MJ-12 documents? Do you think any of them are real, or was it all a fake from the beginning? Uh, I'm not a believer in MJ-12. Uh, the fact that they were released in the same time frame that Berlitz and Moore were, were coming out with their book on Roswell, uh, I find to be highly interesting. Uh, my feeling is that the, the MJ-12 documents were released to bolster the Roswell claims uh, as an extraterrestrial event. Uh, and really, I think it was it was meant to send, uh, uh, which were probably fairly good investigators, uh, which are still fairly good investigators like Stan Friedman and, and Bill Moore, down the wrong rabbit hole. You know, we talk about the signal and noise. If somebody's getting too close to the signal, all you have to do is generate more noise. And, and I think that's what the MJ-12 documents are. They're just more noise to, to get us focused on the wrong track and digging down the wrong hole. To what end, though? And this, this is where we come back to your personal opinion. You're not speaking for MUFON when you answer this, James. What do you think is the motivation behind that ultimately? Well, I think, as I said earlier, that government uh, forces, intelligence agencies, they see the field of ufology as unique for them to exploit for a number of different reasons. Psychological warfare, counterintelligence, uh, counterespionage societal control or at least trying to manipulate uh, the opinions of people. So I think they're like uh, kids in a candy store. They can't keep their hands out of the jar. And so so they, they actively try to control the subject. So one way to control it is to is to make sure nobody understands what their what their ultimate goals are. So if, if for, for example, this research I'm doing into the early days of UFOs, if I can prove that, that's going to that's gonna be a major blow to their efforts. And, and I think that they would like nothing more than for good investigative researchers to be digging somewhere else where, where other than where the truth really lies, whatever that truth may be and whatever the motives may be. Well, keep, we keep coming back to that truth. You know, you have some factions that say that the government is involved in a cover-up in order to hide recovered exotic technologies, that they're exploiting in ways that if the American people found out, for example, in this country, uh, that people would be furious with the degree of secrecy that their government is involved in. Do you think there's anything to that idea? You know, I'm not. I'm not really sure. I do. I, I don't. I. I think that this is interesting. I, I think that I have a theory on conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think conspiracy theory is actively being used by intelligence agencies. The more controversy that a conspiracy can drum up, the less likely that people are going to dig around the facts. You know, I don't know if you saw in Wired magazine recently. They came out with a. I think it was like a six or seven page article on HARP the antenna array up in Alaska. Yes. Now, if you remember back years ago where uh, conspiracy theorists claimed this, uh, this harp array was going to be the end of the world, it was used for weather control, it was used for a number of things, which most people in the, in, in the public simply would not buy because it sounded too much like a conspiracy. It sounded too far-fetched. Well, the, the Wired Magazine article basically corroborated a lot of what the conspiracy theorists were saying. It's a project that's used uh, for heating up the ionosphere, uh, for communicating with submarines, and also for controlling weather. So there is some truth to that. 
But until some somebody official comes out and, and corroborates what the truth is, everything else is left to the conspiracy theorists. And, and, and the American public simply does not, can, even though they like it, it's, it's thrilling, it's intriguing. They can't stomach conspiracy theories uh, as, as a way of, of understanding fact. Well, do you think that's because they're used to uh, consuming their fact via entertainment on television? Well, I think that's part of it, uh, for sure. I guess my, my, my basic point here is that somebody is actively manipulating the American public by taking what should be a subject of scientific investigation and ridiculing it through rumor, through conspiracy theory, and through the entertainment factor so that the focus is not on it. I often think what would happen if, uh, for example, James Bamford, who wrote The Puzzle Palace, uh, got interested in the subject of UFOs just from just from the from a government uh, involvement perspective, and he used his investigative skills to dig deep what he would uncover. But I think most folks who have the good skills, the good investigative skills, are shy away from doing that because they feel it's a dead end. They they don't feel there's any substance to it because so much of it is wrapped up in conspiracy theory. Well, I don't know. I would think that for some researchers that would become more of a challenge then. It's like, okay, so there are more layers around this onion. Maybe what they're trying to hide is so cool that there really is a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And I'm going to get to that gold no matter what it takes because a good investigative journalist, for example, the challenge is, is half the reward, isn't it? Sure. But then if, if somebody uh, good comes along, what these forces then do is they throw them a carrot or they throw them a bone where they are digging down the wrong rabbit hole. That's what I think MJ-12 was all about. I think Bill Moore was an excellent investigator, but he got sidetracked with the MJ-12 issue. I think Stad Freeman's an excellent investigator, but he's also been sidetracked. So they're, they're, you have to pick, pick your, your, your research material carefully, and rather than let something fall in your lap, you need to go find it yourself. And, and I think that's where the, I don't see enough independent research being done in, in ufological circles. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? We have James Carrion, the international director of MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, and we have two more segments to spend with him, and we're just opening up a whole range of discussions. And I know, David, you wanted to mention something, but maybe we should also look through the other rabbit hole, which is that of disclosure. And we have 
various movements saying, it goes back even to Major Donald Kehoe. The government knows the secret about UFOs. They've got to reveal the truth. Let's make it happen. It never happens. And we have movements now towards that end, some quite worthy, others maybe having agendas. So what do you think about disclosure? Is it going to happen in our lifetime? I don't believe, I think disclosure is a fallacy. I, I think disclosure to me is, is, the, uh, is the football that Lucy is holding and, and all, she always takes away from her. <laughs> I mean, I simply, I mean, based on just looking through our own archives, I can't tell you how many articles I came across or letters written. Even, even for example, recently a letter that I, I saw from Walt Andrus or 10 years ago, he was claiming that he had inside sources that uh, the disclosure was imminent. So we keep hearing disclosure is imminent. You know, it's kind of like uh, this religious experience of the second coming. When is it going to happen? I'm not holding my breath because I think that it's a carrot being held out there, again, to, to keep us away from, from, from doing our homework and investigating the truth. Why do I have to go dig in a government archive if the government's going to tell me tomorrow what I need to know? So it's really, it's really, I think, a, a, a tactic that's used to, to waylay us and, and, and to keep us from uh, actively doing what we should be doing, which is research. Where do you think that research will lead us, James? I mean, and, and again, not to keep harping on this point, but and we, we, we're in complete, absolute agreement with you that there's a, a tremendous amount of distraction happening and diversion. But, but then that keeps begging the question, diversion away from what? And what ultimately is the true nature of this phenomenon? Do you think it's even possible that we can ever achieve the state of actually understanding what's actually going on? Well, you know, personally, I think there's a true phenomenon. Uh, but I also think that, uh, and, and it's possible that these same intelligence agencies that I say exploited may not know the truth for themselves. They, they may not have an idea what the true phenomena is about. But that doesn't stop them from taking advantage of it. Um, if you remember back to right after World War II, after we, after we exploded the atomic bomb, then the American people started asking questions. Well, who developed this bomb? When was it developed? How was it developed? So the Truman administration did something very interesting. They came out with a Smythe report that basically said, okay, folks, we had the Manhattan Project. We deceived you. We built these cities you didn't know about. We kept it very secret, but we did it for a very good reason. We were developing this super weapon that would help end the war. And the American public was completely fine with that. The problem we have now is we have this subject of ufology that has been exploited and abused for 60 years by these government intelligence agencies who may not even know what the ultimate truth is themselves. But how do you come out now and tell the American people, hey, folks, we pulled one over your eyes here. We've been using and abusing this for all these years, and uh, that's really what's going on. They have, it makes no sense for them to disclose that. They, they have no incentive. I think the public outrage uh, about being manipulated and being deceived would far outweigh any benefits of, of a disclosure. It, it just doesn't make sense. And in that sense, I think you're exactly on the same page that we are, um, where we've said pretty much those exact same words on the show. And furthermore... If there are factions inside of the military that, let's say, do have some sort of recovered exotic technology that ultimately, in some sort of an, a disclosure scenario, they would actually have to come out and admit that stuff that they've been sitting on studying for 60 years, they're no closer to understanding now than they were when they got it 60 years ago, assuming they got it 60 years ago. Or assuming that maybe there have been crashes of craft since 
the reported Roswell incident, and that maybe they've gotten a bunch of technology, but that the idea that somehow scientists are going to get technology so incredibly different from anything we have and be able to usefully or pragmatically reverse engineer it is fantasy at best. Right. Well, and, 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 and to be honest, I, I'm not sure I even believe that uh, we've recovered anything. I mean, we, we have rumors and we have leaks of all of these various crashes. A lot of them came, came through Roland Stringfield, through the MJ-12 documents, uh, through a number of inside sources. I simply have seen no credible evidence of any crash or any recovered technology or reverse engineering for that matter. What I do see is a lot of disinformation being going around. If you can remember Philip Corso and his claims in his book, The Day After Roswell, which I haven't, I haven't done a good enough job of, of independently researching. But one thing that struck me was in the book he claimed that uh, one of the side effects of reverse engineered technology was night vision goggles. But I have an article dated from early 1947 that shows the Army was already experimenting with night vision technology prior to the Roswell crash. So The same is also true about printed circuits and the other things. Of course, I think one of the excuses that Bill Burns gave when he was on our show, and he is, of course, the co-author who worked with and heavily rewrote the Corso book, as far as I'm concerned. One of the things he was saying is we jump-started it, that Corso went out there, he was the bag man for this technology, he jump-started it. But then who sponsored Corso? If Corso is spreading disinformation, did he just work for his military superiors in doing that? Well, it's a good question. I've, also, I've often thought about what Corso's motives were. And, and one thing that comes to mind, if this goes back to my grand deception theory, if this, if there's been active manipulation from the very beginning of the phenomena, where we've exploited this for national security reasons, it may not, it may not have nothing to do with extraterrestrial visitation or crashes. It may simply have to do with, um, you know, the, the Cold War mentality that came out of post World War II. Corso was one of these folks that was in the war. A uh, very decorated person, high in military intelligence circles. And who's to say that this wasn't his last patriotic act? Who's to say that he didn't come out with this book because, uh, you know, he wanted to continue to promote this or to, to have some sort of corroborating uh, information around this grand deception? We don't know that. I mean, it's all very plausible. It's, to me, that's more plausible than, you know, he did it for altruistic reasons. Uh, you know, when you're in, when you're in military intelligence or in the government, and you're told to keep your mouth shut, and you take that oath of allegiance, you take that very seriously. I had a top secret uh, clearance. Uh, there were things that I was privy to that was classified, none of it extraordinary, but I still won't talk about it to this day because you take the oath very seriously. So that's the problem we have with whistleblowers and inside insiders who all claim they're coming out because they have some allegiance to the public. I, I just simply don't believe that. So, therefore, deathbed confessions about seeing the creatures at Roswell, they're just doing their stuff for God and country. It has nothing to do with being a whistleblower. Well, no, I, I wouldn't go that far because keep in mind that, remember, my theory about this grand deception operation is that very few people at the top were privy to it and that they would actually convince their own people that it was real. So it's possible that you have an MP that was on guard duty the day of the alleged Roswell recovery, and he was parked on the perimeter, and he saw something driven by that looked like little bodies, 
and he was convinced that what he saw was something extraordinary. He took that and he confessed that on his deathbed. So I'm not saying everybody who has a deathbed confession was in on it. I think very few people were in on it. But if somebody, uh, if somebody of Corso's caliber could possibly have been in on it. I mean, he was he was high enough in, in, in intelligent circles to be involved in that. Well, of course, the other the other uh, kind of wild card there is Bill Burns, who also never met a conspiracy he didn't believe in. And, and anybody who listens to the show knows that we started as friends of the Burns and supporters of them. As time went by and we had more and more exposure to them, we, we became much more dubious of the things that they were covering and the way they were covering it. And then, you know, once the UFO hunters hit hit the screen, it was pretty obvious that, you know, you have when you have Bill Burns telling some young fellow who thinks he's having interactions with, with alien beings, oh, by the way, you're a hybrid. At that point, you're you're pissing in the pool. You're, you're simply not helping anybody, and you're really at that point destroying your own credibility. So, so part of the problem there is that when you have that Corso book, you have Burns' involvement. You have him admitting on our show that he rewrote parts of that book in a way that maybe Corso potentially might not have agreed with, and it really just throws the whole thing into question and poisons anything that came out of Corso. Meanwhile. From a practical technological point of view, there are very clear timelines to the kinds of technology that Corso claims were pushed forward by reverse-engineered exotic technology that work just fine without the inclusion of those pieces of technology. So, you know, that I recognize that history is somewhat malleable, especially written history, can be somewhat manipulated. Uh, but again, with most of the technologies that are claimed to have been influenced by exotic recovered reverse engineered technologies, there are already very well established timelines and R&D histories that would sort of refute the idea of any kind of inclusion of exotic stuff. And I would agree. And it's interesting to me that uh, even today that that new a reverse engineering myth is being created. Uh, if you can remember back to the drone photos that were taken in California in oh, 2007. God. A carrot documentation that came uh, out supporting it and claims of reverse engineering. It, to me, it's astounding that people still are talking about not only those photos, but the possibility that there's some reality to it. There's some, there's some truth to it. Uh, in fact, the, uh, the, Two private investigators that were paid by the by this drone research team of the Open Minds Forum were talking at the Crash Retrieval Conference, uh, you know, this last week, and yeah. I delivered my talk. Yeah. Why? Why is that a subject of interest? To me, it's a non-event. Uh, how can you have thirty or so alleged witnesses, none of who can be tied down to be a real person? It's astounding to me that people in this field are so eager to believe and so willing to give up any amount of critical thinking uh, and, and to even even give this the time of day. Well, sure, because uh, you, the UFO topic has become a surrogate religion for people, people who have been disappointed by uh, their religious upbringings. They turn to this as a modern uh, sort of technological religion that still involves mysticism. I mean, what, something that we do know about the human psyche is that, you know, cut across cultures, cut across, you know, genders, there seems to be this need for the mystical element in life as a way to maybe cope with the difficulties of day-to-day -day life. Certainly, religion has a long tradition 
of providing to people something that uh, they couldn't get any other way. And belief systems, it's, it, it's as if they were encoded into our brains in some way as uh, another form of nourishment in the way that maybe sleep is. So you're, you're absolutely right. In what you've said, uh, James, that, you know, this, that there's even that much interest in what were clearly CG images that were rendered. They were obviously CG images. Anybody with any kind of a critical eye or technical knowledge could look at the, the quote unquote drone photos and see them as fakes right off the bat. Then that, that whole Isaac document where I even, I believe online went on, went public saying the images of the parts that are in that documentation are rendered with a radiosity renderer, probably mental ray. I kind of even recognize the render look of a specific rendering technology and said, what you're being passed off, what's being passed off here is actual parts, physical parts. They're CG renders, guys. They have what about the Star look? Wars lettering on the bottom of one of the blades? Let's even forget the issue of that silliness and also... Uh -huh. The problem of morphology, that the shapes of these things in no way reflected anything that had even been remotely reported in over 60 years of UFO reports. And then on top of all of that, start, you start seeing these other images that people were coming up with. Oh, look, drone seen in the Netherlands. Oh, look, drone seen over a beach, which were, you know, I saw some of those photos and I thought to myself, those are pictures taken through a car window that's got a crack in the glass. And sure enough, I mean, people started figuring that out as well. Like you said, James, when people want to believe in something, there's no amount of fact that will dissuade them from their belief systems. It's just that's the way beliefs work. Even if you can convince them that the photos were rendered and the documents are fake, uh, even if they can admit to that, they still will go to their belief and say, well, maybe it's just part of a controlled release program. <laughs> <laughs> Controlled relief of disinformation. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. James Carrion, he's the International Director of MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. Another segment with him, we're talking about separating the signal from the noise, what we like to do here on the Paracast, and he is joining us and helping show the way. I wanted to ask you a question about this in more detail. We have so much garbage in the UFO field today, and we've seen through the decades more and more garbage 
How do we find the real stuff? Where is the real stuff to be found? Well, I, th I think, to me, you're going to have to look at the raw data. I think that's why MUFON is in a unique position, because what we do get more often than not is just raw reports from folks who have no motive or interest in fame who are simply reporting what they're seeing. So to me, it all goes back to the raw data. You know, we, and we need to ignore all these distractors of leaks and whistleblowers and, uh, you know, for example, everything being promoted about Project Serpo and, 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 and all of these things that to me are uh. just complete nonsense and, and, and disinformation. I, I tend to think that, that, you know, these intelligence agencies out there that are doing this for whatever reason, they go out to all the major universities. They actively recruit the most promising psychologists and psychiatrists. And they put them to work on these sociological experiments that we see that result in, in, in things like the drone photos and these uh, forums like Open Minds and Above Top Secret where conspiracy theories being promoted and pushed. These are all distractions. They, they keep you from looking at what, what, what is really happening in front of your eyes, which to me is the raw data, what, what people are really witnessing in the skies. So based on that, James, if you had to look at the last let's say 20 years of data, maybe we'll extend it to 30 years. What comes to your mind as a couple of the most compelling unexplained UFO cases? The most compelling unexplained? I would definitely say Cash Landrum would be one of those. Uh, the John Schuster personally investigated. Now, whether or not that was, uh, you know, a craft uh, of non-human origin or that was an experimental military vehicle, I don't know. But that case, uh, the material evidence in that case is just uh, irrefutable. I mean, James, would you possibly give us a few bits of information, a summary for listeners who aren't familiar with that case? Sure. Cash Landrum uh, happened in uh, Texas. These two women and and, um, and a young boy were traveling down. I think they were coming back from a bingo game. They saw an object hovering above the road, and uh, Betty Cash, uh, who was one of the witnesses, got out of the vehicle. She was uh, received some sort of exposure to possible radiation. She had uh, severe radiation-related effects. She eventually died of her illness. And the interesting thing is the craft was seen uh, being accompanied by military helicopters being escorted somewhere. And um, John Schuster did an enormous amount of research into trying to track down uh, where these military helicopters were based out of. Uh, he was denied access. There was a lawsuit where Betty was uh, suing the, the government because of, uh, of her medical effects, and, and that was thrown out of court. It's just a tremendous amount of information that's factual and verifiable that, uh, that it happened exactly as, as they stated. Whether or not it's, it's something of our origin, our manufacturer, or, or not, I'm not sure, but it's, it's definitely one of the cases that ranks well above most of the cases I've seen out there. And, and it's pretty odd in that there are some extreme things. Like, they didn't see a few helicopters. Um, they basically claim that they counted 23 helicopters, exactly. following, you know, uh, with, with, which would be, you know, pretty significant. Um, you know, it's hard to imagine 23 helicopters in the air at once for something other than some kind of a major uh, military procedure. I mean, you know, 23 helicopters, that's a lot of, that's a lot of hardware in the air around something. What did they claim was the size of this thing, James? Do you remember? I don't remember offhand uh, how big the object was. I'd have to go look at, at uh, John's book. He did write a book about the incident. He did. He wrote a book called The Cash Lantern Incident. All right. Other incidents. What do you think of the Rendlesham Bentwaters case? 
You know, I find it to be very interesting because there's so much evidence around it, but, but it almost, at the same time, seems to have been some sort of psychological warfare exercise. These young Air Force um, military folks who, who were out there and experienced it obviously have real stories to tell. Uh, the question is, again, is it of our manufacture or somebody else's? Is it something that was induced as a, a way to manipulate people's perceptions and, and to see how they act in certain situations? I don't know, but it's a very intriguing case. Hmm. Other cases that come to mind that you think uh, have a lot of uh, compelling reasons to believe are anomalous? Well, I think the uh, 1976 uh, incident over Iran is is um, right. very interesting. That r rates very high uh, for me. The um, Japanese Airlines uh, cargo plane that had its encounter over Alaska, and I think it was 1986, is a very intriguing case. You know, and there's a number of other cases. Uh, the America West Airlines case. What they share in common is that we have highly, you know, credible people telling the story. I mean, from pilots to military personnel, uh, and, and none of them are really trying to promote it for personal gain or, or, or for financial reasons. They just want to tell their story. You know, that's what they want the, their word to get out. So, of course, there's the Lonnie Zamora case, the Socorro case that, that ranks right. high for as well. So given the very high uh, uh, laughter value, that the laughter factor that this topic still seems to create in mainstream media what do you think are is potentially a way to try to work around that do you think there's any specific methodology that would allow us to create some more seriousness around this in the mainstream media or is that even possible well i'm not sure if it's even possible what i've noticed in my interaction with the media is the amount of ridicule attributed to the subject is directly correlated with the amount of ignorance on the part of the reporter. Mm -hmm. So uh, what I tend to do is if, I, if I'm going to be interviewed, I, I spend some time first with the reporter and explain MUFON's role, I explain why we, we take this seriously, and I try to educate them first. And sometimes that deflates the ridicule factor. Um, but it really has to do with how uneasy the, the, the media reporter is with the subject over whether or not they're going to ridicule. Do you think there's any kind of, uh, and there's some conspiracy theory people that think that the media has a specific program of ridicule set up where they, they wouldn't take it seriously no matter what? I mean, do, you, do you agree with that statement? I, I'm not sure if it's, uh, if it's um, uh, some sort of controlled... Um, centralized program that keeps the media uh, from from doing a proper job here, but I, I, I do know based on on our history that, uh, for example, during World War II, uh, the military had a very close relationship to the press. Uh, they had to because they had to get voluntary censorship happening. Right, right. And I think that a lot of those contacts and that relationship continued after the war. So whether or not that's still being exploited uh, on a mass scale or in a centralized operation, I, I can't really tell you. But I, I think that they really don't need to control the media per se. They can simply control the information. By promoting conspiracy theory, uh, it, it becomes itself a laughable item, you know, a, a matter of laughter. Take, for example, something as simple as um, if we look back at Maury Island, for example, this is a UFO incident, but we have a central character in that uh, in that event that later shows up in the JFK assassination. So the media looks at those two and says, oh, these guys must be crazy. They're tying UFOs to JFK. And so I think itself, it, it, it's, um, you know, on its face, it just seems to be a laughable matter. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they can't really see past that. Well, also, the press today is all about entertainment. It's being run by the entertainment divisions of the various networks, not by a separate news division that lives in and of itself and doesn't pay attention to advertising or revenue. I think one of the worst offenders is Fox News. If you go, for example, to MediaMatters.org, you see areas where they have taken quotes from people, videos, and take out sentences to make them say something other than what they said. Or they take videos of six months earlier. Basically, they distort the news. They create their own version of the news. So how do you depend on these people to deliver the facts about anything? Forget about UFOs. Sure. And, and you know, the media is very fickle. If you can remember back to Stephenville, Texas, uh, where MUFON did that uh, radar analysis of the unknown object flying towards Bush's ranch. After we, our research folks did a very good job showing that, yes, there was an unknown object in the air and that there were military jets around it. It was flying directly towards the Western White House, nobody in pursuit. And we showed this very clearly through radar data. We had a press release at our symposium last year. We did a press conference on it, and uh, very little folks from the media showed up. So even though we had hard data that something unknown and anomalous is flying around, they could care less. Instead, what made the major news that day was uh, the Roswell Parade and uh, the, you know people in alien costumes dancing in the streets of Roswell. So yeah, there's a huge entertainment factor to this. And, the, and again, the media, the truth is essentially necessarily paramount to them. For them, it's uh, you know what gets the ratings. Right, and that's certainly true. What we what we know with what happened with the O'Hare episode, the Chicago, Chicago O'Hare episode, where the initial sighting was broken on what the Chicago Tribune website it generated more hits than ever. Uh, John Hilkovich, I think, was the reporter. When NARCAP did their full investigation, the media, you know, that was like months later, because it takes months to do a real investigation. Months later, the media had already moved on. They had completely forgotten about it, and there was absolutely no interest in the NARCAP report. It, it's as if, and, and sadly, one sees this reflected in so many different aspects of our society, where you know you have this initial burst of interest around something when there's scandal or when there's extreme stuff related to it but then when real data starts to come out later on when the facts start to get revealed people have moved on because it's almost as if they're emotionally desensitized they can only respond to things that are scandalous and you know not to not to end up to show on a political note but like in this country right now anybody who tries to actually understand the machinations of the banks and the financial industry well if you spend more than five minutes on it you come away so confused you think how can anybody understand this and that complexity combined with the general ignorance of most people with regards to that topic is basically used by people to further agendas i think it's very easy to draw a a comparison there to how the ufo topic is dealt with something is definitely going on but between the general ignorance of people as to the complexities of the phenomenon historically combined with the fact that most people get their information, get their news from the mainstream media who basically marginalizes all of this, effectively any further understanding of what is really behind the UFO enigma remains completely elusive. Absolutely. I think you, you hit the nail on the head there with, with, with information overload. And also, just with ambiguity, folks do not like ambiguity. Mm-hmm. And if there's anything that is a central topic in <laughs> ufology, it's ambiguity. If you don't have a high tolerance for ambiguity, you simply <laughs> cannot be in this field. 
you know, it, it, so it, it just, uh, I think most folks, they tune it out because they, they, if they can't make sense of it, if it doesn't fit an instant mental picture for them, then, then it's something they, they do tune out. You know, and, and for example, we we're talking really about the media and, and, and how for them it's all about entertainment. Right. This balloon boy incident happened less than a mile uh, from my home. Uh, really? Yes, just down the road, right down the road. Uh, but and, and the, the problem we have now is when we go out and we say we're MUFON and we, we're based out of Fort Collins, Colorado, uh, folks start to say, oh, that's where that balloon boy flying saucer is. Mm-hmm. We, and we yeah. get related to that. So it's it's unfortunate that uh, the media makes such a big deal about uh, some of these very sensational events like, like Balloon Boy. So what do you do? What do you folks at MUFON do with all this happening around you, the difficulty of getting serious media attention because they only care about the Balloon Boy or they care about anything but that or the new Sarah Palin book? How do you get your side into this and get some kind of coverage, get some serious attention? Well, we hope for a major event that happens during a very slow news period. <laughs> Gene is going to fill himself up with helium, <laughs> and we're going to paint him bright colors, and we're going to put Christmas tree lights around him. And then I, from a boat in the Hudson, will shoot him down from the sky, and I'll make sure to load him up with C4 so he explodes in an incredible burst of fire and smoke in the middle of the sky with the Christmas tree lights going, and it'll all fall into the Hudson, and there'll be nothing left, and it will be the new UFO enigma of the Hudson Valley. What do you say, Gene? Well, I think I think you better uh, be careful about how you edit this show, because Homeland Security may be interested in that. <laughs> oh, I don't care. It's all right. Well, I'll tell you what, because I live in Arizona and not in New York, there is no chance in hell that I will participate. However, David, <laughs> you know, yeah. we can talk about this. I was thinking, you know, you're pretty skilled at special effects, you know? You know, you're going to make me tell the story about the uh, the uh, special event I did for some of the top special effects minds in the world a number of years ago for a bachelor party. We're out in West Marin County. There was the end. Boy, I can't believe I'm admitting this on the air. Uh, there was the UFO scene one night. This was a number of years ago. And what that UFO was, was a blow-up doll <laughs> that was filled with, um, like, you know, those glow sticks, the chemical glow rods? Right. We had a, a blow-up doll filled with those. We had four huge balloons, those Edmund Scientific balloons, those weather balloon things, filled with helium. We broke these glow rods, stuffed them into all the orifices of this blow-up doll, and sent the whole thing off with these balloons into the air in West Marin. And I was standing there with some of the top visual effects minds in the whole world. We're doing this whole thing. They all knew that there was this weird event going to happen on the way to dinner at a restaurant that's now burned down in, uh, in Inverness. And I asked, does anybody have a camera? And you had, again, some of the Boy, if you took the Oscars that that group of people had won collectively, it would be more than a dozen. Um, and not a single one of those guys had not even a point-and-shoot camera on them. So we all watched this, and I was looking very carefully next morning to see if there were UFO reports out of West Marin. With the alien being glowing from within, flying through the West Marin skies, and there was nothing. End of story. 
Before we end this story, James Carrion, International Director of MUFON, here's a time to get in your pitch one more time, tell our listeners about the organization, how they can get involved. Sure. Uh, you can uh, find out more information about MUFON on our website at www.mufon.com, M-U-F-O-N.com. MUFON's uh, mission is the scientific research of uh, UFOs for the benefit of humanity. We have three goals, to investigate, to research, and to educate the public. Uh, we are actively looking for new investigators to help us uh, go out there and figure out what uh, people are witnessing in the skies. And uh, we're also looking for anybody who uh, has a background in research to help us try to make sense of the data. Uh, and that's what we're all about. So please, uh, please help us in our search for truth. That's MUFON.com. And if you click on the link from the Paracast.com site about our reference to the show, you can get another direct route there, but it's M-U-F-O-N.com. James Carrion, International Director of MUFON, thank you so much for being a mensch and coming on the Paracast. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, James. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.